From the team at CTS, this is the Train Ride Podcast, our show for endurance athletes who want to learn how to train more effectively and improve their performance. I'm Coach Adam Pulford, your host for the cycling edition of the show, where it's my job to interview top coaches, scientists, experts, and athletes in the world of cycling to bring you actionable training tips that you can apply to your own training. Now, let's dive into the show and learn how you can train right. This episode of the Train Right Podcast is brought to you by Stages Cycling, the industry leader in accurate, reliable, and proven power meters and training devices. Stages Cycling offers the widest range of power meter makes and models to fit any bike, any drivetrain, and any rider. They're all manufactured in their Boulder, Colorado facility, and they've expanded their offerings to include the Stages Dash line of innovative and intuitive GPS cycling computers covering a full range of training and workout-specific features to make your workouts go as smooth as possible. And now Stages is applying its decade of indoor cycling studio expertise with the new Stages Bike Smart Trainer. Check it all out at www.stagescycling.com. This episode of the TrainRight podcast is brought to you by the CTS TrainRight membership. The TrainRight membership helps you get the most out of your limited training time so that you can improve your performance and achieve your athletic goals. With the membership, you get access to science-based training plans, an 800-plus workout library, and an app to track your progress, along with advice from professional coaches via an online private form. Go to trainright.com backslash membership to learn where to start and use code TRAINRIGHT for a free 14-day trial. Again, that's code TRAINRIGHT in all capital letters for a free 14-day trial. Performing in extreme conditions like heat or altitude are more stressful to an athlete if they're not accustomed to training and competing in those conditions on a regular basis. As you learned in part one of this series, there's multiple ways to combat these stressors and have better outcomes for your event. Add the stress of the Olympic stage with stifling heat in a way different time zone, and you've got some things to figure out. We'll learn how one athlete has prepared as best he can to medal in Tokyo, no matter the conditions. Oh, and that new music you're hearing? I hope you like it as much as I do. It's actually more foreshadowing for today's guest. Music, poetry, rap, bikes, flow, all coming to you today on the Train Right Podcast. Keep driving through the nights that you thought wouldn't reach the morning. Keep your love, keep your faith, I know you fought to feel important. Through all your empty stadiums, constantly keep performing till all of the pieces form and you're finding your ballads pouring your heart from a chalice till you can knock on the palace door. Welcome back or welcome to the Train Right Podcast. Coach Adam here, your host, and on today's show, we're talking with the youngest guest we've had on yet. And you'll quickly learn that this rising star is now shining brightly on the world stage for mountain bike racing. Christopher Blevins has won countless national championships in multiple disciplines across the sport, from BMX to cross-country mountain bike racing and cyclocross. He's won some big races on the, t- on the road too, like the 2016 Peace Race, which is arguably one of the biggest accomplishments a junior cyclist could achieve. He also won a silver medal at the 2020 U23 Mountain Bike World Championships, which is a feat that I don't think we've done on the men's side since 2001. And currently, he races for the Trinity Racing UCI Mountain Bike Team and has been named as uh, the sole member of the U.S. Men's 
Olympic team to represent the United States at the Tokyo Olympics. Christopher, it's an honor and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me and uh, for making me feel young. (laughs) It's not so often with how many fast juniors there are coming up in the States to I'm starting to I'm starting to feel like one of the old guys now. So, <laughs> yeah, 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 you kind of are, and and um, we have a huge wave coming. And what's kind of cool is, you know, I think you know this, but like you were at the tip of that wave, and I think that uh, a lot of the young riders out there and some of the young riders I work with, it's you know they look up to you and, and what you've been doing, and and that's created the wave. So yeah, yeah, it's exciting yeah. to say yeah, the least. So where where are you uh, where are you coming from today? Where are you at? I'm in Arco, Italy, um, on the northern tip of Lake Garda. It is, uh, um, I've never been here before, didn't know what to expect, but I can say, honestly, it's maybe the favorite place I've ever been. Um, I've been, you know, fortunate to go to a lot of cool places with my bike. Um, something about maybe it's, you know, Italy and the the whole world opening back up from COVID a little bit and, and, and kind of recognizing the vibrancy of this place and the Italian culture, but man, it's so cool and such good riding. So I'm on a high for sure. <laughs> well, can't wait to, can't wait to see some of the the videos you'll be posting from there before you head yeah, out to Tokyo. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, so some of the, the quick overview here, like I said, in the intro is, uh, we'll get some of the specifics on how, uh, Christopher and his coach, Jim Miller, who's been on the show a few times have been preparing for the different environmental conditions, uh, for the Tokyo Olympics. But, uh, I want to learn more about you, Christopher, and I want our listeners to to learn more too, because there's more than just like bikes and, and bunny hops and stuff going on here. So mm-hmm. uh, could you tell our listeners a bit more about yourself, where you're from and how you got into where you're at? Yeah. Um, of course, I'm from Durango, Colorado. Um, yeah. Very proud of being from Durango because it's such a special community and, you know, I'm, I'm the product of a number of like incredible youth cycling groups and chief among them is Durango Devo. Um, but I started not on the mountain bike. I started with BMX when I was five. Um, there was an ad in the local paper and my dad took me to the BMX track and, you know, BMX tracks are kind of just, you know, total playgrounds for kids growing up. And that's why there's so many young kids that are, that are BMXers racing nationally all over the country. And that was one of them. Um, and that was my introduction to, to the bike and racing at a high level. Um, and, uh, yeah, I was really serious with BMX all through elementary school years and somewhere along the way, mountain biking and, and road were added to the mix. And then those two became the, the, the sole focus and, um, went to Cal Poly, uh, in San Luis Obispo for college actually graduated officially just a couple of weeks ago. Um, congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. It's weird with, you know, just closing your computer and calling at the end of college, but yeah, uh, such are the times. Um, yeah. But yeah, uh, now I'm, you know, it's it's new chapter, I guess. Oh, sole focus right now is the Olympics, and and uh, after that, I'm a college grad, and <laughs> we'll see where to go. But um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, More chapters so. after that. Totally. Yeah. So tell me, tell me a bit more like, uh, like BMX. Why, why did that resonate with you? Like when your dad brought you down and you just started playing, like what, what, what hooked you there? Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's simple. It was just how fun it was. And, uh, my dad reminds me pretty often after my first trap race, we traveled to, I think it was in Salt Lake city. Um, it was a national race there. And, uh, I mean, it's a simple thing, but 
on the on the plane home, I was just like, Dad, that was fun. Let's do it again. And he's like, I always remember that moment. And I was like, Yeah, son, we're gonna do it again. <laughs> and you know, I mean, my my dad and I went like my mom and sister. My mom kind of stayed home with my sister, so my dad was traveling me with me the most. But we, I've never counted, you know, how many Holiday Inns we stayed in around the country and livestock arenas we raced BMX in. But it's in the hundreds for sure. Um, so, so it was quite an adventure, uh, growing up and really special, um, to have that, <clears throat> that high level of, of focus and, you know, community, even though it's an individual sport. Um, and then, you know, BMX was the introduction to like the, the racing and the competitive side of it. And I think mm-hmm. that kind of planted a, a really lit a fire in me and, and kind of built that competitive competitiveness that each athlete needs at this level um really young for me um and the counter to that was was durango devo kind of a more adventurous side yeah so i mean what's unique is right in durango not only do you have all the trails and all the outside to to ride in and stuff but durango devo and what uh chad has created there with the the culture and also just a bunch of off-road athletes living there and creating careers there. I mean, you just like, you're at the epicenter of, of riding bikes. Totally. Um, I mean, yeah. 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 Chad, um, and, and Sarah Tesher, you know, the, the co-founders of Devo, like I often think, uh, especially recently, like the impact that one person can have in their community and starting a youth riding program like that, that has alumni, you know, in, um, <laughs> winning grand tour stages with Sepp Coos and, the Olympics now twice with Howard and I, and, and also like in the, in the, in the industry or coaching kids and all over the world. And it's just really special. Uh, yeah. What, what Durango Devo is and, and kind of the, the ethos that it operates on. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, um, you know, right time, right place. And, and, uh, you know, your dad and mom and even your sister putting in the hours of getting around the country. So it's a really totally. unique, <laughs> yeah. Community and situation to allow you to do what you do. So that's, I wanted to like portray that for people. Um, Absolutely. The opportunities that you've had. Yeah. 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 It's uh, you know, I, I, like, I think this, especially reflecting now on, on making the Olympic team, it's like, it really is the product of all of these people who've influenced me and um, given me opportunities that I was truly fortunate to have in right time, right place. And obviously there's a ton of work, but with everything of, you know, achievements of this magnitude, there's, there's, there's a thousand people, uh, in tiny moments that add up to it. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it all started with, with BMX and doing a Devo. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I just want to, Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, in my family, of course. <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah. That, that's it. Yeah. That's the rock for sure. <laughs> and just kind of portray that, that development because there's, there's some, there's some young uh, developmental riders that listen to this podcast and stuff too. So, I mean, you went from Durango Devo to the whole athlete program, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And, yep. And uh, from there uh, to the Oxen Hogman Berman crew mm-hmm. where you were racing on the road. And tell me a little bit, just like, because I saw you racing on the whole athlete program when I was directing a team uh, here in the United States. I saw you there for a bit. And then, you know, we didn't see much of Christopher Blevins because you were racing on the road so much. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, what, what made you move from whole athlete to Hogs Berman? Yeah. Um, well, you know, whole athlete was, uh, I think like 
you know, athlete had a huge impact in, on so many athletes and like <laughs> yeah, me, was- you know, I mean, my, my college roommate, um, my best friend, Anders Johnson, uh, I met through whole athlete, um, one of my <laughs> best friends and, you know, high school girlfriend I met there and then Haley Batten, who I'm, you know, uh, going to the Olympics with and, and teammates with on Trinity, um, as well as Kate Courtney, you know, we all came through whole athlete and yep. the level of like, I think excellence and, and professionalism that whole athlete had, it was, uh, was really unique and a great time for athletes that wanted to be serious about the sport, like learning how to be professional and, and, and train really well. Um, and that was huge, you know, and it, it was, like I said, great timing for our developmental stage. Um, and then, you know, I had a good connection with Specialized as a junior since I was racing on the um, NCCF Specialized Junior Road Team based out of the Bay Area with Larry Nolan, another fantastic program, and then whole athlete as well. So um, that Specialized connection along with, I guess, my piece race result on the road helped me <laughs> have, a, have a call with, with Axel Merckx. And, um, you know, I wasn't sure I wanted to race the road continue racing the road in college, um, in my first couple of years, U23, but it was, uh, you know, a dream to race for action that I had had since I was like 13, 14 and, uh, Axel allowing me to have the freedom to race mountain bikes along with road was, was, uh, too good of an opportunity to pass up. And I'm really grateful. I, you know, said yes to, to racing on action because it was, you know, stellar team. So. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I mean, it's, it's the foresight of what Axel has there is just, you know, recognizing how to manage you and, and give you the options because clearly there's passion for both road and mountain right now you're on the mountain mission and, uh, there'll be more chapters to come to, I'm sure. Yeah. And I think, you know, I was still like, it was only what, three, four years ago when, mm-hmm. um, when I was first year, 23, yeah, four years ago, but like that was, that was still early for kind of the cycling industry to consider these roadies that also race mountain bikes or mountain bikers that also race road. And now it like is starting to feel like the norm or like a hidden kind of advantage that can, (laughs) can hopefully, you know, help develop more Matthew Vanderpools or Tom Pitcocks. Um, So from a strictly training perspective, the mountain bike mixed with the road mixed with cross um, can, can develop you, incredibly well um and be very versatile both in how you race and how you respond as an athlete um and i think you know axel recognized that mountain biking was not going to do harm to my road even though uh i missed a few starts but yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah no that's it and that that's the developmental aspect of of the athlete it's like which which bike all the bikes and, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you definitely do that. And I think, you know, a nod to your current team too. I mean, Trinity racing, um, tell us a little bit more about that because they're, they're far reaching too. I mean, they've got athletes on all disciplines. Yeah. Um, you know, this year with Trinity is kind of a new, it's, it's in some ways like the inception of a new team and it's really exciting kind of, yeah, like you said, the far reaches that this team has already and how, um, it'll continue to grow, um, a very solid you know, young road team with a lot of good Brits, but, um, an American with Luke Lamperti who just won pro crit Nats. And, um, for me personally, uh, I'm not sure if I'm going to race any road this year, but I I have the opportunity to do so with Trinity, which was really intriguing. And then cyclocross 
um, I'm 99% sure I'm going to give it a go at the World Cups and Cross Worlds this year. And, you know, Trinity offers the experience and know-how and uh, platform to do that. So it's, yeah, it's an exciting team to be a part of and uh, I think grow with. Yeah, that's great. No, I, I like that a lot. And, you know, it's it, it's interesting to be able to interview you and have our listeners uh, hear this, like, you know, how does a rider develop with all the bikes, let's just say that, and uh, in, in perform at such a high level. So I, I guess from the training side of things, if we go back to BMX, can you tell our listeners, like, what are the main differences in like how you prepared for BMX racing versus cross-country mountain bike racing? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think, you know, people who aren't cyclists at all or, uh, you know, watch the Olympics maybe and see cycling as a discipline and they assume that riders could do both. But that's like thinking, uh, I mean, essentially Usain Bolt could beat the best marathon runners. And that's the difference in BMX from a training perspective. It's like a 30, 35 second race and incredibly chaotic and, and dangerous, um, exciting. But, uh, yeah, I, as a kid, I started lifting weights pretty young, like at 12 and it was all functional stuff. And then I never got that big. And that's kind of <laughs> why I realized in some ways, like my body type is, is better suited for the endurance side of things. And I want to keep my body, you know, intact and not, not have like 13 surgeries by the time I'm 30. Um, <laughs> exactly. Um, but I was doing a ton of sprint work, uh, goes without saying, and then a lot of work in the gym. And I know that's the formula for, um, all of the, the, the elite BMXers. Um, I do think though that they, and this applies to track racing as well. They are starting to realize the benefit of, of training with volume, even though they're sprinters and, uh, go on some road bikes and suit up in the chamois. Um, and, uh, you know, it just, just builds a healthy athlete. Um, I was just going to say, which is really exciting because it adds in like so much health component to it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, absolutely. And I, yeah, no, I think that, you know, maybe that was, that was an advantage to, to me in my later years of BMXing, which I stopped when I was 16, but having a full focus on road and mountain, maybe, you know, it was more of, in some ways it was an advantage than a detriment, um, to focus on the endurance side of things, but it's certainly BMX from a skill standpoint, um, was huge and foundational. And then also from a mental side of things, like when you're getting ready for a 30 second BMX race, where the first two seconds determines your whole season, really, <laughs> like you gotta be so locked in and have that, um, resilience and, you know, I, I definitely think that that has helped me when, when it hits the fan for sure. And in, in road racing and stuff, um, and working my way through the pack, I learned that all through BMX. So, um, it's a great sport for, for young kids. And, um, I definitely, you know, advocate for <laughs> kids trying it out. And, um, it's, yeah, it, it will lead to, it will if you if you escape it you know and you and you head to mountain road uh, but yeah. and also like i love the bmx world and the community but yeah. it's different yeah for sure different. it's it's way different but that's that's kind of my point for for listeners who don't know maybe anything about bmx it's just like the the metabolic demands are drastically different than cross-country mountain bike racing however those technical skills and those those you know high risk situations that's translatable 
And yeah. I think that's what I see in you when I, when I, when I watch you race, it's just like that technical proficiency and focus when shit gets crazy. Like you got that <laughs> and it's pretty fun to see, you know? Um, and, and so I, I have this question on here and, and it's what type of rider would you describe yourself as like to our listeners out there to better portray like the, the type or style of riding yeah. that you do? Well, I, I mean, I'd say, um, at the risk of sounding like I'm avoiding the question, maybe like I am an all arounder. And, mm-hmm. uh, when, even when I was on the road, like I had a couple solid TTs, I was never going to be a, you know, grand tour GC rider, but, uh, I could climb up the longer stuff. Um, I was, I was the lead out guy for our sprinters on action and even had a couple sprint my, sprints myself, um, in XEO, you know, I mean, XEO is essentially a time trial for an hour and a half and you can't really yeah. like, you know, it's, it's, it's more you in the terrain than it is you and the competitors, but I am really good at starting. And if I'm starting fifth row, like I can get myself to the first or second row, um, by the end of the start loop. And I think that's a huge skill. And that, that does, you know, implore the BMX skills of the punch, the punchiness and the, and the, um, you know, the tack to, to move through the pack, um, courses. I think that's a good indication of the type of rider I am. And and I like steep, shorter climbs. So something in the under one minute range, but fast dry descents are kind of typical of growing up on the West. So prefer those over the wet Rudy stuff we see so often in Europe, but, um, and then if you throw in a couple pump tracks and jumps, then, uh, <laughs> then I'll really be loving it, but you don't get that all that often. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I, I say that a lot too, in terms of uh, cross country mountain bike racing is to technical time trial with a hard start, Yeah, you know, and if, you know, if you're coming up the ranks, like you have been and you got to negotiate moving through people, but I think that's where that, you know, the bike handling skills and the anaerobic training that you had early on, I mean, that's, that's showcasing through now. So, um, but yeah, that's, it's interesting to hear that background and as it applies to today, but yeah, you're all around here making chapters as we go here. So, um, yeah. I, you know, you mentioned Durango Devo and how influential it was, you know, to your development, but to the training side of things, can you describe like when you moved from BMX to that Devo team, like what kind of volume were you doing? Was it intervals? Was it racing? Was there structure? Like what did, what did, uh what the heck are you doing? Yeah. Um, I mean, Devo was famous for like intervals being like a bad word and like we were allergic to intervals and that's special. But at the same time we had monthly telegraph time trials, which is a, you know, 15 minutes. If you're really fast, 20 minutes, uh, was really good as a kid and, uh, yeah, 20 minute climb, uh, in Durango and Howard forever had the longest time probably still does. Uh, and everyone was cheering at the top and built little tunnels that you, you know, human tunnels that you'd go through. And it's like, what a cool way to get kids stoked on pedaling hard and seeing what they're made of, um, without them realizing that they're training like that. <laughs> and then of course we'd have little town sprint races on the road bikes and stuff like that. Um, and then I should mention also weekly short tracks that Chad designs the courses, uh, and they're always just so fun. <laughs> um, And then I was in a unique position because I was racing BMX, like so seriously, like at 12, right. I had already had six national titles and, um, 
was like a veteran in the sport at that time, like six years of traveling and had a, had a routine and like was training really hard. Like, uh, I don't know what the hours were, but it doesn't fall too short of what I'm doing now. Um, Mm -hmm. so Devo was really like no structure and go ride your bike with your friends. Sometimes it'll be hard. Sometimes you'll show up and play foot down in the parking lot. Um, and that was really healthy. Um, I don't think I would have, you know, quite gotten to the point I'm at so quickly. Uh, like for instance, one piece race when I was 18, if I didn't have a coach when I was 15 and start training a little more structured, but in the case of like a Howard Grotz or Sepp Kuss, they had the natural talent and just went on these crazy long adventure rides. And then like, by the time they were later in their junior years or in college, they were like, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll do this seriously. And, uh, very quickly, you know, went to the very top of the sport. So they're, they're rare cases and exceptional athletes, but, um, sure. yeah, the, the mix was, was essential for me. Yeah. And that's, and that's kind of the the point there is like, because you came at it at such a different angle, uh, so focused and so intense, like early on, I think, you know, the pendulum <laughs> was in one direction and, uh, Devo made that pendulum swing a little bit more and kind of gave you that, that balance or that, that, uh, the fun factor you needed to, to balance it all out. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's a testament to the power of you know community and training and that's it. like you can go out and bang your head against the wall on an interval day all by yourself. And there's something special to that. And there's something important about that, like learning to love that if you're serious about it and learning to have that kind of intrinsic inner motivation to, to meet that wall and go past it. But at the same time, like find the community and the training partners, whether you call them that or just riding buddies that you can go out and have fun with and don't isolate yourself in your, in your training plan uh, to where you don't say yes to a fun group ride and don't really know how it's going to go, but it always turns out great. So, um, that's a, that's a piece of advice I have, especially for young riders is like leverage your, your community or, you know, seek out the the people around you that are doing the same thing as you. That's sage advice. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> couldn't agree more. Uh, well, I know you started working with Jim Miller and that's when, you know, your structure probably changed quite a bit there too. Um, can you talk about uh, what you're doing a little bit before Jim? And then once you started working with him and maybe even what the experience was going through that transition? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I'd honestly say the structure almost went down in some ways. Um, and I know, you know, you've had Jim on, and I'm sure he's talked about like his philosophy of just building the engine and just going out and yeah. like, honestly, just busting your ass. <laughs> so like a structure, I wasn't accounting for every minute of the ride in a specific power zone, but the work went up for sure. And the volume went up, um, which I wasn't expecting because I was choosing to focus on the mountain bike at that time. And I was, I I thought that, uh, you know, I'd be doing hour and a half rides, like two and a half hour rides. And now those are, those are, those are short, short. Um, so when I had a few four hour days in a row with like high endurance, it was like, oof, this is, this is grueling. And, um, I think that Jim's philosophy, uh, really centers around that engine building and, uh, it takes time, you know, I mean, building fitness, uh, year in, year out, like will continue to, to, to stack the pyramid higher on your form. And, uh, 
I think that's where, where I'm, where I'm at and where I'll hopefully continue to see those gains. But transition was, was mid season. I kind of realized, um, you know, I wanted to change and just to see what I was capable of with a higher workload. And I remember before you know, I sort of alluded to this just a second ago, but before Australia worlds, my first year under 23, like I had a few four hour days and I was like, damn, like Jim, why am I, why am I doing this? And he's like, volume builds fitness. And I was like, all right. And then I had one day I went, if he's, if Jim listens to this, he'll probably, maybe he'll remember and laugh about it. But I certainly remembered. <laughs> um, I had a like four hour ride and I did three hours and 40 minutes. And, you know, I think this was after I had asked him why he had the high volume a month or so away from world champs. And, uh, he says, you know, 20 minutes short is, um, an hour and a half a week, which is, you know, five hours a month, which is, <laughs> you know, 50 hours, um, of training block or something. And, I was like, man, am I like on this prison sentence of doing it? And <laughs> But like now I'm at a point where a four hour endurance plus ride, which is that high level uh, of endurance that you can just kind of uncomfortable all day. Like I, I really love those days and I'll go out and pick this epic ride and just bust it out. And uh, it's funny how your perspective of that and your perspective of what's hard changes the more you really settle into it. So took some adjustments. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, you know, that, that, that's it entirely. And it, it takes time, but once you have that fitness, I mean, uh, when you're fit, everything's more fun, including those long, sticky, you know, tempo rides, like, like you're talking about, but you know, what Jim's coming from and I share similar uh, mentality with him, but it's like what he's doing there is, you know, 20 minutes short on one ride. You do that over the course of seven days, it starts to add up. You do that over the course of, you know, 31 days, it really adds up. And I did a podcast with Steven Seiler and he talked about kind of that long-term approach to developing an athlete. And it's, it's not only the long rides, but it's like a bunch of those long rides strung mm -hmm. together over time, over time to build that engine and get that pyramid uh, nice and wide so it can go nice and high. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it's, you know, and volume does build fitness and then eventually, you know, hone it down to get that performance, which is where we're at right now. Totally. Totally. Yeah. 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 So it's often it, just to speak on that, I think, yeah. And I'm sure Steven Seiler would say that something along the lines, uh, as far as my limited understanding of his philosophy, like training is a lot more simple than people often make it. And, you know, yeah. you still need incredibly smart people like yourself and Jim and Steven, you know, leading the athletes, but, um, yeah, you just kind of got to put your nose to the grindstone sometimes. And then as you get closer to the event, understand, what output you need for that and, and hone it in a bit closer. Yeah. And, and that's it. And I think not to training is simple in my head, human physiology and, and human psychology is complicated. Very true. Very well said. Yeah. And getting the athlete to have buy-in and, and getting them motivated to do the work that that's, you know, that's the art of it. And I, when you can do that, when you have, somebody like Jim or Steven that can motivate the athlete in intelligent ways and sift through the BS that's out there. Cause there's a lot of BS. And I think that's what makes the strategy complicated or deciding on a strategy complicated that Very true. most athletes, yeah, they, they, they want the, you know, the secret weapon or the, the magic pill or something like this. And it's just a bunch of work, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> good rest, 
and get it done and then have, have some good timing. So, yeah, totally. Yeah. No, I like that. I like that. So, um, kind of coming back to, you know, you alluded to it a few times, but like when you started working with Jim, you hadn't decided necessarily to go laser focus on the mountain bike for the Olympics. When did you make that decision? It was actually, it was pretty early on talking to Jim and he was an advocate of it kind of from the inception, like when we started working together. Um, that is About like how long ago was this? Yeah, this was three years ago, I want to say. Um, yeah. But like, I've told this story a few times in the past month, but I had a sticky note on my wall freshman year of college, which was 2016, um, that said Tokyo. So like, I've had this on my mind, you know, dream since I was a kid, but past four years, I really realized like I could do this. And uh, it definitely had a lot to do with my decision to leave action in 2020, 2019, sorry. And, um, and just focus on the mountain bike. So it was good timing. Um, and you know, we, at that time we were chasing points to try to secure two spots and we fell a bit short, but, um, yeah, Jim and I have had this plan and worked towards it for three, four years now. We'll get into that here in just a second, but I guess since we brought it up, how did it feel when you heard that you actually made that spot? Yeah, it's, you know, I mean, <laughs> goes without saying it's emotional and, yeah. and really special. Um, and I, I knew more or less like certainty that I had it, but still like getting the official call, like I didn't expect to actually get the goosebumps and feel it so strongly, even though I, I knew what I was going to hear on the other end of the phone. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's an honor and, uh, it's, it's the continuation of the, the dream that, that kind of lives in the process, if that makes sense. Yep. hundred percent, hundred percent makes sense. Um, and you mentioned that 2019 to 2020, um, year in, in, in the transition. I mean, we had a little pandemic, um, get in the way and, and still kind of, you know, definitely hanging in there. Uh, how did COVID change things for you? How did it change your, your training? Yeah. Well, you know, 2019 wasn't a great season for me. I had high hopes and fell a bit short and, uh, a lot of it, I won't go too deep into this, but I think throughout that year, I realized like I, a bit more why I wanted to, to be a bike racer and, um, how I wanted to be a bike racer and kind of the inner journey through that and realizing like, yeah, you know, I do want this and I want it my way. And, um, it was important, you know, year of kind of that reflection to realize the purpose and smashing pedals and <laughs> pursuing yeah. this goal. Um, yeah. and I think if I didn't have that, those challenges in 2019 and come out of it with a bit of a renewed sense of purpose, I, I would have, uh, not worked as hard as I did in 2020. Um, we're so fortunate as cyclists that throughout the pandemic, it was the best social distance activity you could ask for. Um, yep. I mean, we're so fortunate and I was in San Luis Obispo and these beautiful roads and busting my ass. And I planned some, I planned a mock grand tour of sorts and it wasn't obviously quite the level of a grand tour, but it was like close to 30 hours for three weeks. Um, and I had, I do some creative things like, bring out five guys, cat ones that are, that had fresh legs on one day and, and talk some trash and then 
let them attack me at the end. And I was like the one who had to pull back every move. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, that was a, and then also as, as a That's bunch huge. of pros did, like I went for a ton of KOMs and yeah. I'd have one of those N plus days and have to steal like two 20 minute KOMs throughout it. And it was so cool to realize like in training, you don't have to go on the perfect 5% grade, you know, hill and meet your threshold and stare at your power number the whole time. You can do the same effort um, when you're kind of chasing a carrot, whether that's a Strava segment or um, whatever, uh, some friends. So that's from a training perspective, how I work through it. And then later in the year, I went to Europe, had about a month before the World Cups um, and one race in there and to get my feet under me and um, ran into Tom freaking Pidcock. And, you know, he showed us a lot. <laughs> I think, uh, especially with Tom, for you know, <laughs> listeners who don't know, I'm sure you know what Tom Pidcock is at this point. But yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah after he... Let's hope that if not, yeah. Google him and, and, and watch right? Red Bull TV. Yeah. But after he smashed Nova Mesto, you know, beat all the elites, I was um, like, man, can't you just hand me the U23 World Championships for 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 real humans but i say that obviously joking um you know tom was <laughs> by far the most you know the most deserving that you can get but yeah. long way of me saying the world's was a big goal in my mind and a second place again i had one in 2018 but a silver medal to tom pitcock was um was great so uh that kept me motivated throughout the whole year because i had the feeling world's was going to happen well, that's, yeah. I mean, a lot of athletes have had to recalibrate over, over that 2020 year. And it seems like you recalibrated pretty well, uh, to, to get that, but to go in a little deeper there, when you said you, the mock grand tour, what was yours and Jim's, what was the rationale? What was the goal of simulating something like that to, to the stresses of the body, to the, the mindset? I mean, why go so big on a year where, there's no racing around. Yeah. Well, I mean, on one hand, it's a goal in and of itself. And if you make training camps, their own achievement to, to work through it, it, it nicely wraps it up in a little bow. And you're like, yeah, that, that camp that we called, you know, uh, whatever you want to call it, put a fancy name to it, make a Google docs and like plan your routes and have your hashtag Kate Epic. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I don't have a, have one. Uh, Blevins zero. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there you go. I'll use that one next time. Um, okay, perfect. But yeah, I had a bunch of point to point days where I had friends pick me up in Santa Barbara, like 120 miles down the coast and um, really like got creative with it. And when you yeah. approach training like that and plan it beforehand, it is a lot more fun and you're a little more motivated. Um, so that was one rationale. And then, he has coached a lot of the world tour guys and saw that any of the guys that were in their early twenties who had a world tour in their legs just got a huge step up the next year. Um, and by no means did I actually get a world tour or grand tour in my legs. Uh, but I tried to the best I could. And, uh, Mm -hmm. that level, that load didn't necessarily pay off like in the short term, but I think in the long term, continuous hits like that, will start to stack up really well. Yeah. That, that's why I bring it up because it's, there's twofold there. One is there's a principle of training called variability or variety. 
Mm-hmm. And as a coach, you, you need to be, you need to stay creative to add in variety, to change things up, to look at things in different ways, to stress the athlete in a different way. And, uh, you know, when I heard you guys doing that, I was like, oh, that's, that's awesome. That, that's a brilliant way to do it. Right. And the, you know, chasing, um, you know, chasing, uh, King of the mountains and getting segments and all this kind of stuff, really motivating way to do this during COVID. And the other thing is, you know, spot on with a developmental rider, those who have more of the opportunity to, um, ride and race their bike more in a very, in a functionally overreaching, or I would call it, call it overtraining if you want, but get super tired, uh, over the course of three weeks, they come out a changed rider mm-hmm. and you, you know, you read anything, you interview athletes and after their first grand tour, if they survive, if they bounce back and still want to ride their bike, um, they're a changed <laughs> rider for sure. Yeah. And uh, yeah, especially, that's yeah, the one obviously asterisk to throw in there, which I know, I know, you know, uh, you were maybe going to say this, but is rest after obviously. So huge. Um, huge. I really shut it down for a week and then rebuilt from there. Uh, yeah. but you can't, you can't do that all the time. Um, so three weeks is sort of the maximum that you can go th- those, you know, 30 hour weeks with, with intensity, mm-hmm. but, uh, yeah, got to, got to rest just as hard as you train. Yeah. And that's the asterisk. And, and you, you alluded to that as well. It's like, you know, the gains in the short term may have not been, you know, as, as uh, clear, but in the long term they will be. And that's just it. And I'm not advocating really anybody to do this on their own. Like if they listen to this, like, don't do that on your own. Like make sure you got somebody overlooking your shoulder and giving you some guidance, but it's a very, uh, very effective way if you have all the tools in place to, to really make an overload. So, yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about the specificity of Tokyo, which, which I think is really interesting because, uh, Tokyo it's projected to be one of the hottest Olympics on record. And so question to you is what kind of considerations have you and Jim, um, taken in training to prep specifically for uh, Tokyo? Yeah. So, um, you know, we've known for a while how important the heat, uh, acclimatization will be for Tokyo. And, uh, you know, from now we've got almost 30 days backed up to the event and I'm here in Italy in 90 degrees and sweating a ton every day. So, um, (laughs) starting that direct process, like right before the event, but I've also done the sauna protocol, uh, a bit of a sauna protocol after training, Mm -hmm. um, you know, where after the ride, you hop in the sauna for, for 20 minutes, you build up to that point and, uh, you got to do it carefully. You can't, it's another training stress and, uh, you can't just, you know, not adjust your training. So we were mindful of that. And then, um, periodically kind of plugged in more sauna. And then now I've got, I've got two races, uh, one of them a world cup before Tokyo. And those are great opportunities to, uh, deploy the, the strategies that the whole team has for, uh, staying cool as you can. And then, for me personally, I am as salty of a sweater as it gets. Um, I did a sweat test and I'm just like top of the chart. So I need to drink a lot of sodium beforehand and, uh, and hyperhydrate. Um, so anybody, you know, who's listening and goes through a long summer ride and gets a bunch of salt on their bibs, like you're probably a salty sweater too. And you probably need to drink more sodium before your ride than you, uh, than you think. So, um, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's exactly it. And, and I think, 
it's as simple as, is that too, in terms of like, how do you prepare for a hot environment? Well, you have to stress your body with, with heat stress and there's very intelligent ways of doing this. There's a very in, unintelligent ways of doing this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if we can just back up to the, say a post ride sauna treatment, uh, like what temperatures are you starting at and going up to and what are your dosages or, or your, um, exposure times in the sauna afterwards? Yeah. So throughout a week, um, probably worked myself from 10 minutes to 20 mm-hmm. and, uh, slowly rehydrated, like not just didn't just, you know, down Don't just do. glasses of water right after, yeah, um, yeah. in, in replace with electrolytes, but do it immediately following the, the, um, training. And I don't know, you know, the specifics of the, the science to it, but, um, regardless of if you sauna, you know, routinely like this after a ride, it's going to boost your blood plasma volume and, uh, generate a, a, a response that, um, is similar to maybe sleeping in an altitude tent, you know, um, in some ways. Right. So mm-hmm. as far as the adaptation, it can, it can start to develop. So, um, it was just, and also mentally like knowing that I can sit in a sauna when I'm at post ride really hot for 20 minutes and get used to that feeling of, uh, you know, suffocating a little bit from the heat, but <laughs> yes. Yeah. There's some mental toughness training that's going on in conjunction with uh, plasma volume expansion for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then in terms of knowing you're a salty sweater, so you had, you had a, um, sweat test done. Did you do that at the Olympic Paralympic training center or did, where'd you have that done at? I actually did it up in Santa Cruz, uh, just oh, closer to, to me in San Luis Obispo. So. Gotcha. Gotcha. Do you remember like your sodium concentration rates to, off the top of your head or cause I'm just. Yeah. Curious. I think it was like, it was over 1500, um, milligrams per liter. So yeah. That did I they have that. like three test sites on the body or just one? Uh, I think we were just doing like my finger, uh, okay. or hands, but Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 1500 is good. But again, the indicator of, you know, having some sweat or having the, the salt lines uh, on your, on your kit afterwards, it, you know, if you taste your sweat, sure it's salty, but that, those are good indicators. So if that's what you're experiencing, yeah, put it in cause you're going to use it. For sure. Yeah, totally. Totally. Uh, how do you, how do you preload your electrolytes or your sodium? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not set in a, in a routine that I'm been locked in for for years at this point. So I'm still kind of tinkering with stuff, but, um, I have a specific amount, um, you know, something like 2000 milligrams of sodium before uh, a race in the, in the bottle and an hour before and, and go in not peeing every 30 minutes. Um, Mm -hmm. and certainly not peeing 30 minutes off of just water. You want that, that high sodium level. Um, and you will store water a bit, maybe blow it up a little bit, and you know, your belly will feel a little full if you have that much sodium in your system. But when it's that hot, I think, uh, it's important for me. And then during the races, I'll, I'll have, um, a bottle mountain bike pits at world cups typically have two feeds. So in one of the feeds, I'll grab a salt bottle, um, electrolyte bottle. And then in the other one, I'll, uh, grab a more carbo, uh, carb loaded bottle and then, uh, have some gels as well. But that's the strategy I'm, I'm starting to really, really lock into. Love it. Yeah. Sounds like a perfect strategy to me. Um, 
and just again, one curiosity granular thing is if you are say training or hard racing about how many milligrams of sodium are you trying to get down per hour? Yeah. Um, you know, per hour, tricky one, right? If it's an hour and a half race, mm-hmm. I'll typically have three Total bottles. Lap, if that's the way yeah, yeah. Yeah. So try to drink like three full bottles, which is, uh, six mm-hmm. half bottles that you grab in the, in the feed. Yeah. Um, that'd be on the upper range, but I'll drink some water too, because you just have to with the stomach. Sometimes water tastes so good and salt mix is like the worst thing on the planet. <laughs> For sure. But, um, it's an emotional ride. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, 750 or so, uh, milligrams mm-hmm. per bottle. So that would be, um, 2,200 or so. Um, yep. Yeah. Yeah. And the reason I want to point that out again, it's like, once you've confirmed, and I, I always confirm with science and numbers if you can, uh, when you're trying to dial in a, um, a fueling strategy, it's like once you know that you're a high high user, a high burner of the sodium, I mean, put it in because your body's going to use it. Mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't do it blindly necessarily. I wouldn't listen to Christopher Blevins' podcast and then yeah. go out and hit four grams of <laughs> sodium yeah. per, per hour or anything. Particularly if you're not sweating a ton, right? And, you know. Yeah, that's it. Don't want hypertension all the time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because yeah, I mean, it it, it can it, not going to go crazy, but yes, hypertension, lots of um, uh, kind of inflammation that can, that can go on to these are ext- like extreme measures for extreme environments, which is why we're talking about Tokyo, hot, humid environments for performance. Totally, totally. Yeah. So, kind of that specificity for Tokyo and what you're doing in Italy and all this kind of stuff. Uh, most listeners are not prepping for Tokyo, but they do have some big races coming up, say like a race in Cape Epic, for example, or Ironman Arizona. Uh, what advice would you give them if they're trying to prepare for a long, hard, epic feat in, in a hot environment? Yeah. Um, well, one thing that applies in general, regardless of your discipline is when you have hard training rides, um, that mirror the intensity and the length of, uh, what your effort's going to be like, do your same strategy in training. Um, it seems like such an obvious thing, but so often, you know, you, you, you forget the, the bottle you're preloading with, or you grab like the leftover cookies as ride food instead of the, the <laughs> chews or the gels that you typically race with. Yeah. And I think, you know, you can't eat the same gels every workout and expect to, uh, ever want to, have them in a race, uh, let alone have a good stomach for it. But, um, it's important on specific days to like have the same warm up strategy, um, and the same fueling strategy before you go at it. Um, and that's something I'm really using right now before Tokyo. Uh, and then specifically those long, you know, rides in the summer, uh, long races in the summer, like, <laughs> simple, right. But hydrate Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I've listened to, uh, I don't know if you have, but a couple podcasts about, uh, heat and cooling strategies and Dr. Huberman's from Stanford. And he has Mm -hmm. a couple interesting, um, interesting notes on, on cooling the the palms of your hands and your feet and, and how to like lower your core temperature. So there's tons of ways you can, you can try to make it work. Like if you're fortunate to have someone hand you ice socks at the, at the feed, like take those. Um, it doesn't seem like a priority to grab a, uh, 
<laughs> what are they? A pantyhose in a feed zone in Tokyo at the Olympics and put that around your neck. It's like, no man, like I'm just going to focus on the race, of course. But like that is going to be crucial to grab that ice saw yeah. and put it on your neck. Um, yep. So, you know, don't, don't ignore those little things you can do. Um, and then pre hydrate is huge. You know, you can't yeah. just do it on the bike. Yeah. You, and you've mentioned pre-cooling here a few times. You're absolutely right. And we'll, we'll talk about that before we, before we wrap, but, um, the pre-cooling and during cooling is interesting. And I remember, um, it's working with, this is back on show air working with Keegan and he had a pre-cooling device. It was, it was interesting because those are the times where we had some, uh, some gloves that were pre-cooling, but it was very, um, not applicable to mountain biking. But then we came out with, um, a cooling sensor for, uh, the wrist. And so it would uh, go on the, the underside of the wrist and you press a button. And I think we, it was like claimed to be about an hour of cooling effect to go right there on the wrist. Mm-hmm. So you wouldn't have to grab ice sock or anything like this. And we tried it at uh first Wyndham. I think, <laughs> of course we tried it in a race for the first time. It didn't work mm-hmm. very well. Flicked it over to me in the, in the pits and, um, and, uh, that didn't work out so well. So we go back to the ice sock for sure. And, uh, in the ice side, the pantyhose with ice, throw it in the back, grab those at races. Um, are you going to deploy that strategy at Tokyo? Yeah. You know, I think there's, you know, Jim, and there's a whole team of people dialing it in and, um, I don't know the exact specifics yet, but I've gotten some emails with, with the whole protocol and I won't, (laughs) I won't, uh, you know, spend 10 minutes talking about it, but it includes (laughs) things like, yeah, the ice vest, pre-cooling strategies, um, socks during the race yeah. um ice slushies before you start yeah a bunch of stuff so yeah yep and in kind of the whole goal there and yeah we're not going to spend a ton of time but the whole goal is you know core temperature will rise obviously and it, once it reaches a point performance goes down and the whole goal is to keep athlete cool so that that core temperature is then delayed right mm-hmm. so that you can race at your high performance for longer and, and hopefully core temperature stays lower than the other person mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that in in competition cooling and pre-cooling is very important totally. so, yeah well before we before we wrap this up i know uh balance balance is an interesting one for athletes uh and you seem to find it off the bike um tell me more about i mean you're done with school now but you have a huge music component to what you do and, uh, some rap and some poetry. Tell, tell us more about that. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, um, it's a simple, you know, outlet and form of expression that's so different than being an athlete in such a good balance. Um, I actually recently wrote a little blog for, for a friend, um, in his, his group, he's got, um, about that kind of poetic heart in the poet, poet, po- poetry process, excuse me, poetic process. Um, and how f- for so long I've thought of it as something that's so different than cycling that it balances things out. But in a lot of ways, I think that the art of poetry and the process of poetry and, you know, digging into your depth and figuring out what you're made of applies just the same to, to being an athlete. And, you know, there's a lot of room as an athlete to have a poetic heart and artistic mind. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of athletes with, with, uh, kind of quirks or, or hobbies that they, they have running parallel to cycling. And it's, it's hugely important to keep those other sides of us alive. Um, and that was also everything to do with why I picked to go to Cal Poly 
instead of uh, a cycling school. And I wanted friends that didn't know the sport and uh, who I could relate to outside of the bike. And uh, that was huge. So the balance and perspective is the most important thing. I think the balance in doing everything at once is is less important. <laughs> you know, I've realized, I think yep. through the past couple of years of, of uh, occasional scatteredness and running around like a chicken with my head cut off that um, <laughs> sometimes you only need to do one thing and only need to focus on Tokyo or, or your job or whatever, whatever have you. Um, but keeping the balanced perspective is more important than, than a balance of action in a lot of ways. So, um, understanding, you know, you know, what else there is out there and, and where it sits in the world and in your world is crucial. Um, and, and music and poetry is, is the opportunity to, to reflect on that for me. And, um, yeah, I've got my mini guitar here and I'm terrible at it, but I, I brought that in my bike case to Europe and I'm trying to get better. So <laughs> nice. Nice. Yeah. I, I think again, balance is such an interesting one. And I, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned it because like we get out of balance a lot and we, we balance to me almost like doesn't exist. Right. We, because the, the, life it's a zoomed out time period when we're talking about balance. Right. And there's these time periods where you're just severely out of balance and then you swing back the other way to find this other balance in order to balance it all out to where you want to go in the end. And so it's interesting like that. And I was listening to a podcast where you mentioned, uh, you know, the rap and the music and the, and the poetry, um, being so separate from the bike. And I was like, man, Christopher, I think it's, I think it's real similar, right? Yeah. It's like a different mode, right? The creativity and the, in the flow states that occur in both. It's like very similar. Totally. And I honestly just recently yeah. had that, had that realization. So. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and I understand that you, that you have or, or do work with, uh, some kids at a juvenile hall in near Durango, um, kind of working on some of this poetry and stuff. Yeah. In San Luis Obispo actually, um, oh, in San started Obispo. This, okay. yeah, yeah, I was a sociology minor in college and that's kind of how I, um, became passionate about, you know, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> the human side of criminal justice and, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, um, had the opportunity to volunteer with this great organization and, and help run a creative writing program there more, more often than, than not, we just sit and play cards with the kids. And I haven't, I went a couple times this past year once it reopened with COVID. Um, but haven't been able to have the consistency. That's, that's really important to, to build those relationships. Um, but you know, this is an example of choosing something that will widen perspective and, choosing something that's important for, you know, a development that has nothing to do with on the bike stuff and, um, the development of, of hum- humanity and <laughs> what my own humanity mm-hmm. and how I want to relate to people. So, um, it's a simple thing and it's, it's one hour a week, um, when I'm available to go in and, um, talk to kids who, who may not have people believing in them. Um, and, and just, yeah, you know, give them the time of day to play cards with them and, and, uh, and be a resource, you know, if they, if they want to talk to you about stuff. So, um, I'm also helping a, uh, with a couple employees from Specialize, not affiliated with, with the company, but, um, we're running a program at an adult prison in, in, uh, Salinas Valley. Um, and there's this, there's this group, it's a maximum security prison. And there's a, a group that has organized to reach out to at-risk youth and uh, try to tell them their stories and have an impact from behind the bars. Um, 
So they lead seminars on, you know, mistakes they made and in, in development and how they can change the paradigms we have. So um, I write letters with a lot of inmates and have learned so much about, you know, <laughs> about so much. So that's been huge. And I'd love to continue to, to build those pathways and explore that, which, uh, you know, is obviously a world away from, from the bike stuff, but, uh, hugely important to me. Yeah. That is, that is so rad. Uh, I, I didn't know that about you, uh, just before this, this podcast. So that's really cool. Uh, keep that going. That kind of inspires me to, uh, get off this microphone or get off the, the phone or from a, out from a bike race and go do something, something different. Get back. So, <laughs> well, thanks. This is cool. Appreciate it. Yeah. 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 Man. Well, we, we covered, we covered a ton today, Christopher, and this is a, this is a wonderful conversation. You're a fascinating human being. And I want to thank you again for taking your time to be on the show. I know you got big things going on. So, um, we'll put a pin in it here just at the top of the hour. But my last question to you is, um, because like I said, we do have a lot of juniors listening to this uh, podcast and we also have uh, people chasing their goals. So if you could give any advice to the young athletes, writers, musicians, or anyone pursuing their big dream, what would you tell them? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I kind of, I feel like I, to go back to what I said earlier about two things, two things that are sort of different, sort of related. Um, one of them is community and, you know, share the, the, what you're going through with others and, and live in that kind of gift that you're doing together, whether it's <laughs> riding your bike or, um, making music or whatever. But I think there's, there's a lot of power in, in connection and there's a lot of power to opening to other people and involving them in your process. And like I started the show with, I'm, I'm the product of so many people who help, you know, provide me opportunities to get here and, and provide me love along the way. And, uh, you know, lean into those, be a resource for other people around you and, uh, just go shred with your friends, you know? <laughs> and then other side of it, more personal is, is slow down and take the time to, to reflect and to examine your why. And it doesn't have to always be some, some big kind of like foundational, you know, deep philosophical examination of, of why you're doing something. Sometimes it's super simple and you're, you're, you're doing this because you want that, but you know, know your own reason external of other motivations and, um, other achievements you could, you could, you could get out there. Um, and, and, you know, people, people know what I'm talking about here, but mm. so often we, we forget to slow down and we, we don't think there's more to life than, than just increasing it in speed. And, you know, we all need that reminder, especially now. So, uh, I know I do, but, <laughs> um, <laughs> I do too. Yeah. Do too. Yeah. But yeah. keep that alive in the sport, you know, keep that, yeah. that feeling of why you got into it and, uh, what you want to be as an athlete or, or whatever it is. Um, keep that alive. Beautiful. Love it. Well, thank you, Christopher. Uh, thanks for the time and good luck in Tokyo, man. Yeah. Appreciate it. Adam. Thanks a lot. Yeah. yeah take care. Thanks for joining us this week on the train, right? Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. Make sure to visit our website at trainwright.com forward slash podcast, where you can find social links, bonus content, and more about CTS. Go ahead and subscribe to the podcast so you'll never miss a show and leave us a rating on iTunes. Until next time, train hard, train smart.
train right. <laughs>